All right, friends, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 5. We're going to uh, continue our study here. Romans chapter 5 is, uh, well, it's all great stuff, but it's um, a cool chapter because we're going to begin to change directions a little bit. If you remember the first two and a half chapters, so chapter 1, 2, and the first half of 3 are all the Paul laying out the reality that all are condemned under sin. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew and you have the law and you say that you love the law and then break it yourself. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile that's never had the law, never had any revelation about the law, uh, but that you will be judged by the light that you have, that even creation itself testifies to uh, God's divine power and uh, nature. And so because of that, that every human being on the planet, uh, not just uh, for doing bad things, but of who they are, the, where they've come from, as we'll get to next week in chapter 5 also, is condemned under sin. And that God's judgment and his wrath rests upon humanity. And then when we get into the second half of chapter 3. This is where Paul begins to reveal that there is a righteousness from God. And he says there in verse 21, the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. That the law, as we've been saying, it never was ever designed to make a person righteous. It cannot, in fact, we're told in Romans and in other places, Hebrews, Galatians. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told that the law is weak and it's passing away. Not to, to uh, go against what Jesus said, the law would never pass away until, until uh, we're in heaven, but that the law in, in its effort, or I shouldn't say its effort, in our desire to be righteous, it can't do it. We cannot be made right by the law. So God has given a righteousness that is through Christ. Remember, that's what the whole gist of the end there of chapter 3 is that righteousness is by faith in Christ. Now, in chapter 4, Paul makes a point, and it's for all of us, but specifically important to Jews. And he uses Abraham as the perfect example because Abraham was before the law, right? There was no law, written law like we had here uh, before uh, Abraham, that he was bumping around Ur the Chaldees, that uh, we, as we looked at last week, honestly, he doesn't even fully, faithfully answer God's call in the beginning. It's 10 years before he goes to where God tells him to go. It's after his father dies. He hangs out in Haran for like 10 years. Then he starts to go south to where God had called him to. And if we, you know, if we were to review his life, that, that God makes him a promise. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation and all the world, so you're going to be blessed. And Abraham says, okay. <laughs> yes, I, I received that. And then God says, because you trusted me that I would make good on my promise, you're right with me. So righteousness came to Abraham apart from the law. It was, it was pre-law. Why is that important? Because that never changed. The law did not nullify the righteousness that came by faith to Abraham. In fact, Abraham is called the father of many nations, not just Israel, but of anybody who believes with the faith of Abraham. And what's the faith of Abraham? That God made a promise and he received it. Now, last week we turned to Genesis 15 and observed the instance in which that happens. And if you remember, just as a side note, it's 13 years between where Abraham trusts God for righteousness and then circumcision is given. So that's 13 years. So not even circumcision has anything to do with righteousness. It was a token given by God to Abraham to show that he had trusted God. It was an outward token of an inward reality. Okay, 
So when, uh, when we went and we read in Genesis 15, read about Abraham, uh, for us it's a little weird, but remember, it's solidifying the point, when God tells Abraham, I'm going to do that, Abraham believes him, and then God says, puts him into a sleep, and he starts having these, these visions, he dreams, or a vision, however you'd like to put it, he dreams about some rough things that are going to happen to his descendants, his seminal descendants, his literal descendants, when they go into Egypt. And he says they're going to be there for 400 years and when, because the, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. And then he's going to pull them out of Israel. They're going to go and, and they start their journey. Now, if you recall, and this is maybe weird for us, but God cuts covenant with Abraham. Remember, after Abraham believes him, God says, hey, I want you to take uh, these three. I think it was a bull, a goat. I can't remember all the animals. He says, cut the animals, cut them in half, and that's lengthwise, longitudinally, and then lay them aside. And, and we might be tempted to be like, oh, it's so cool. It's like a, it's like a precursor. It's a foreshadowing, like a good book to, to sacrifice. No, not at all. It is God basically using a custom of the day called cutting covenant to make a covenant with Abraham, something Abraham would have very much understood. And so when two sheiks or landowners or you know, whatever you'd like to call them, when they made a deal, whether it was water rights or a marriage or land rights or whatever it was, you had the cutting of the covenant and the two agreeant, the people that are going to agree, they walk through the middle of those dead animals. And the idea is this, I'll do that to you if you break this commitment. <laughs> I will cut you in half lengthwise if you break your commitment with me. But the interesting thing is, is that the, the cutting of the covenant, Abraham never walks through it. He's asleep. And it's when he's asleep that it says by a smoking pot and by a, a, uh, an oil lamp, they kind of mystically float through the center uh, of this, this cutting covenant, and they represent God. So the point that God makes to Abraham and to his descendants is that this, you can do this to me if I let you down. And we're not trying to be pompous or be self-important or anything like that. It just furthers the point that this, that righteousness from Abraham, Noah, uh, you know, Abel, all human beings have been justified by faith. So then when the law comes, it's still the faith of Abraham that saved a person. It was not the law. In other words, we're told in uh, 1 Corinthians, we're told that all these things, uh, all the, the sacrifices and the temple and all the pieces of the temple, and all, that they were types and shadows for us to, uh, excuse me, types and shadows of Christ for us to look back on. Now, if you remember... And all the sacrifices and all the things that were going on there, it never said that those forgave sin. Remember, it said that they atoned for sin or literally that they smeared over sin. It's the idea of taking blood and smearing over sin. In fact, we have that confirmed for us in Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could literally never forgive sin. See, the, the acts of the law could not forgive sin. It was always faith that you brought your sacrifice, that you did those things, and you offered it to God because he was the one that made you righteous. Remember, he says that four different times in the Old Testament when it's about the Sabbath and about the sacrifices. He says that you will remember that I am the Lord, I the Lord am the one who makes you righteous. We, last week, we talked about it in the venue because I think it's one of the most stark uh, contrast, one of the stark reminders is the death penalty is, is if, or excuse me, the, the Sabbath, if you break it, it nets the death penalty, right? So if you were to break the Sabbath, they even have that issue where they catch a guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath. I mean, I chuck, it's not funny, but he's out, he's, you know, he's out picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Doesn't that sound like super innocent? Like, what do you do today? Why well, I pick up some sticks? 
I need some firewood. Maybe it wasn't innocent. I don't know. I wasn't there. But he's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And everybody, they bring him to Moses. The law is already declared. They already know what the penalty is. They know they're supposed to stone him to death. But they still bring him to Moses. And they're like, hey, we caught this guy picking up sticks. What do you think we should do? And Moses goes, let me ask God. Let you ask God. You already had the law. You already knew what was supposed to happen to this guy. And so the, the Lord says, he says there in, in, uh, in uh, Exodus 31, he says, you have to execute him. You, the whole congregation, you know, a parson, you, all, you, throw, you throw rocks at him until he's dead. For picking up sticks on Saturday morning. Seems a little radical. The explanation that God gives is he says, you keep the Sabbath, you, your donkeys, your oxen, your servants, Everybody in your way, you keep the Sabbath because that's the day when you're doing absolutely nothing that you remember that I'm the Lord that sanctifies you. See, the Sabbath, the sacrifices, they were such a big deal, but they were a big deal because they were to point to the fact that God was always the one that sanctified a person. Sanctification, salvation, justification, reconciliation, all the Asians, they have all always come by faith and that God would make good on his promise. That's the base of them. The law came in, it says, to basically build sin, to show us our need for that forgiveness that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. Okay? And so Paul, aptly through the Holy Spirit, makes that example, which would be very stark for any Jew, to realize that, that righteousness comes by, by grace through faith. So then in chapter 5, it's pretty cool, because now we're going to kind of begin a different section here. So, and it's an important section from 5 till 12. Well, actually, 5 till 15, now that I think about it. But there's a little parenthetical section in there from 9 to 11 where he's going to talk about uh, calling, predestination, and, and his purpose for the Jews. But in the, from the other chapters, from 5 on, he's going to talk about how does faith work in our lives? And how do we experience all that God has for us? Depending on how you got saved, if you know Jesus as your Savior, depending on how you got saved, where you got saved, all those type of things, many variables for many of us. If we attended a church, if we didn't attend a church, if we attended a church our whole life, something that's really important is discipleship. Because for a lot of us, we probably, maybe we went to a kid's group or maybe we went to church for a while or whatever it was, and we, we raised our hand. I'm not minimizing this. I'm just making a general story. And we said, yes, I acknowledge that I have sinned. And not only do I sin, but I recognize that I am altogether morally bankrupt in my own heart. And if the, my heart and its thought life were to be played on the big screen for everyone, I would vomit and then shrink up and die, right? Because that's the truth of who we are. And so when we cried out to Christ and we said, yes, I need the forgiveness that you purchased for me out of your blood apart from the law, and when you rose from the dead, you demonstrated the new life that you've created that I can walk in and the power I can have over sin. All in you and no merit to me, right? So many of us, we, made, we did that. We said, yes, I need that in my life. And then for some of us, we began, to kind of, we began to kind of bob in Christianity where we just kind of got set free like, congratulations, you're saved. Maybe you can get baptized next weekend or something if you feel like it. 
right? And we kind of went out on this like broad ocean of life, knowing that God is real and that he saved us, but then things begin to happen to us. For some of us, whether it was like, you know, Carl Sagan came along and we're like, oh no, maybe it, evolution is all real or, you know, whatever it was and different people come along or, or and we'll talk about this later too, people that, you know, experts that read a, read a pamphlet one time and so they know the Bible is not reliable, you know, whatever it might be. Because we never really learned how to walk with the Lord, not learning laws, not being good people, but literally just learning how to have a relationship with God, we just kind of were set free to float. And when that happens, let's just be honest, it typically ends in disaster. And then when it ends in disaster, oftentimes God gets the blame, the church gets the blame, our parents get the blame, everybody gets the blame but us. And so what Paul's going to embark on, the journey he's starting now, is Here's how we deal with real life and what justification by grace through faith means in real life, which is really important, isn't it? For any of us who floated along, any of us who felt helpless, any of us who felt just crazy anxiety or depression, dealt with those things, not know where they're coming from, not know how to deal with them, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's why this is so exciting, because Paul is literally telling us, here's how you can experience God all the time. I, there's a book that I, I like, and uh, I think this a guy named Dallas Willard. So he wrote a lot of books, but he wrote a, a trilogy. And the middle book in the trilogy is uh, The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, Dallas Willard was a uh, philosophy teacher at USC uh, for I, I can't remember how many years, but he was the head of philosophy. He's a Christian. And so, with a uh, spoiler alert, The Divine Conspiracy is that God actually wants a relationship with you. That's what, I mean, so I can skip like 3,000 pages if you like. God wants a relationship with you. But he says it a lot better, and he's got all these great purposes. But one of the things that he notes in his book, and he's not making fun of it, and he's not putting anybody down. He seems to be a pretty legit guy. But he says, he talks about having read a bumper sticker while he was driving one day that said, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And he's not picking on that truth, because it's true. That is the truth, right? But the point that he says is, what does that mean we're just forgiven? Is that really what Christ has saved us for? Is that really what the gospel for? Is the gospel so that you can be just forgiven? So you can just kind of know that your slate is clean and then bob through life with troubles and trials and tribulations because of the broken world that we live in and the, our own broken morality and the broken morality of those around us. Is that really what God sent Jesus for, to just be forgiven? And his point obviously is no. It's for so much more. It's a life that we, we dream about. It's a life that we desire. It's a fullness. It's a relationship. But how do we come to that point? How do we walk in that? And so that's kind of where we dive into chapter 5 today to look at how does this begin with real life. So if you don't mind, flip over into Romans chapter 5 if you haven't already, and let's look into this. He starts off with, with chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so in everything he's been talking about, one through four, since this is true, we have been justified by faith. Past tense. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 
Now, in this beginning where he begins to kind of break down real life, he goes right to it to suffering. But it's important to says, since we have been justified by faith. And I want to make a side point here because it comes into play. So in biblical, in Bible translation, and this is stuff you can look up for yourself. Uh, there's also a shameless plug. There's a book on the back. It's called Can We Still Believe the Bible? It's written by Craig Blomberg, and he'll be here December 4th. He's uh, one of the, he's the New Testament poobah at uh, Denver Seminary. So he's actually going to talk about the validity of the scriptures December 4th. Did I say December 4th? It's December 4th uh, at uh, 10 a.m., two sessions. So if you'd like to be part of that, go ahead and sign up. But the point is this. The Bible is reliable, okay? Knowing the Bible is reliable, how does it, how does it work? How is it, this is a side note. How is it translated? It's translated because if you had a biology teacher like my biology teacher, they were geniuses. They knew everything, right, in high school. And somewhere down the road, that biology teacher read a pamphlet and became a genius and an expert on how the Bible is translated. And maybe you've heard this before. The Bible has been translated so many times in so many languages, how is it possibly valid anymore? And you go, oh, it has been like 2,000 years. That's a lot of years. I mean, people can get some stuff confused. And if we're talking Old Testament, I mean, shoot, now we're getting 4,000 years. Is it really reliable? How does it work? Here's the deal. We have about 5,500 scraps. I say scraps. I just mean pieces of the Bible. Uh, from all the, way, all the way back to the Aramaic translations that for about 100 AD and, and on. And, and they're different sizes. Like when I say scraps, you literally have pieces that are like this big that'll have like Greek scrolling on it or Hebrew scrolling, something like that, or Aramaic. And then you have things like the Dead Sea Scrolls where you have an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah, right? And the cool thing about all these scraps, other than like punctuation or syntax type stuff, there's only 0.05% deviation in those scraps. Does that make sense? So they only argue about 0.05%, meaning they don't match up. Because we don't have like Paul's actual letter. I mean, the Vatican might. They have a ton of stuff locked up, uh, locked up but they don't really let people see that. But, so it's, but what we have, general scholarship for the New Testament, that's, that's what we have, and the Old Testament. That's what we have. And so when they go through and they translate it, it doesn't get translated millions of times with millions of languages. It goes from what we have in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic in Latin to what you have into English. And all those scraps get considered and consulted. So when somebody comes along and they mean well or mean poorly, whatever they mean, and they say, oh, it's been translated so many times and you just can't trust it, it's just not true. It's either said out of ignorance or it's said out of a lie. So we're not here to judge their hearts. Why am I saying that? Because this is one of the places where the, the, the scriptures, they don't completely agree. So what is it? How do we do it? The most reliable ones and the most, uh, some of the oldest ones they have, we have, where it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The we isn't actually there in the bulk of them. And the idea is actually the, the, the most likely translation. And I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to change anything. We have peace with God is just as true, okay? But really the idea that's being communicated here is let us enjoy or let us have the peace of God. In other words, for the purpose of experience, continue in that peace. Does that make sense? We do have peace, and we're told that. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that. Ephesians 3 tells us that Christ is our peace, Okay? 
But in this gear switch, and it's going to con- the, the context for that translation will continue on into the next, the next section here. The idea of letting this peace, let, you know, be in that peace is this. You have peace through Christ, which is the very good news. And when it says you have peace, the idea, the, the Greek is you perpetually always have peace in Christ. Here's this. It's not so much that we're at peace with him. That's great. But it's better news than that because he is at peace with you in Christ. How much of our lives or your life or my life is spent trying to make sure that God has peace with me? Trying to make sure like, I'm, like he's a bad dad and I have to talk him down before he gets drunk and he beats me. Or that he's just waiting to assault me or he's just so unhappy with me and, and I have to walk on eggshells or else I'm done for. And so in this practical step that Paul is taking in justification by grace through faith is this. Stop trying to make peace. Instead, you just stand in the peace that God has for you. We'll talk about more about that later. His peace is always available to you. He is always at peace with you. The question is, what do we do with that peace? And likewise, also this grace. In the wording here, the same thing with when he says we. He says, through him, we also, or through him, let us also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the idea is this, that grace is always there. Obtained access literally means we have the privilege to approach. So he says to us, the idea here is let's always maintain, and I I want to be careful with maintain, but let's always make sure that we're staying in that grace. See, God is not taking his peace and his grace from us. It's not that if we're naughty one day, well, then he says, you don't get my peace because you're naughty and you don't deserve it. And then we're naughty one day and we sin it up and we, you know, whatever we do in traffic or whatever happens. And, we, and, and then he goes, well, you don't, you don't get my grace anymore because you sin, so you don't get my grace. That's the absolute opposite of what he says. We know from Hebrews that we have boldness to come to the throne of grace in our time of need. When do you need grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Do you need God's unmerited favor if you could be good enough? Do you need unmerited favor from God if, if, if you could somehow do enough works to approach his throne? Would any of us be so pompous to say, well, I was good enough this week that I deserve to pray and ask God to provide for me. I deserve to go right to his throne room any old time I want because I'm good enough. We act like it sometimes. In, 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 in weird ways. I think worship, for me, is one of the, the most stark ways. Because if we feel like we've had a good week, man, we come into worship and, we, you know, we're singing and we're rocking and God is good and we're just like, whoa, right? If we've been naughty this week, we're like, you're good, Lord. I don't really deserve to be here, right? Isn't that what we do? What are we saying? My standing before your throne, I don't have boldness to come in in a time of need. I don't have boldness because of what Christ did. I only have boldness when I'm good. We try to stand in our own righteousness. But see, what's being communicated here is the way we walk with Christ, it's not that we started with grace and now we stand in our own righteousness. That's cultish. That's weird. That's legalism. We come and worship the Lord because we say, I know I'm unworthy. I know that I failed this week. I'm not proud of it. I'm not boasting in that. But I'm boasting in your grace. I'm boasting in your kindness. I'm boasting that that Christ was enough. I lift my hands to worship you because Christ is enough. Not because I was good enough to lift my hands. 
This is a pocket Sunday. This is a hand lift Sunday. But because he's good. There's so many ways where we constantly revert back to this idea. If I've been naughty, then grace doesn't apply. And Paul is not saying that. He's saying in the tough things of life, in all things of life, make sure that you continue to stand in God's peace, meaning acknowledging he's at peace with you, acknowledging that he has favor for you, and walking in the love he has for you. And he's going to describe that love a little bit. And so it's, it seems uh, appropriate that right out of the gate when he's talking about the things of life and how to walk in grace and, and walk in this unbelievable um, uh, grace, justification that we have, that he brings up suffering. And I, I'm actually, uh, sorry, I want to note one more thing. Because he says there, uh, he says, the faith, I'll read the whole thing, verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Just, just for kicks, the word stand there, it's in the present active. Or excuse me, the perfect active. And so what that means is the grace that we have been placed in that we will perpetually stand in. That's the idea. It's grace in perpetuity. It doesn't mean in which we stood when we were good and then we don't stand in when we're bad. It's the grace that through Christ we, per- we will stand in and not be removed. And this, these wordings are important to understand what happened at the cross, what happened when we put our trust in him. So then comes the first question, and this is so true, the question of suffering. And he's going to say, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that we, when we are, well, he hasn't talked about suffering yet, forgive me for that. But he's coming to this point where he's saying, look, as we uh, abide in this peace, not that it's be taken from us, but we, we continue to enjoy it. And then we, as we abide in this grace, not that it's being taken from us, but we continue to enjoy it. That when we're doing these things, we're also walking and we're rejoicing or literally boasting in the hope that God gets glory. Now, glory, again, it's, it can be kind of this weird nebulous thing. Literally here, it means good opinion. Uh, in the Old Testament, it has the idea of weightiness, the weight, the glory of God. You know, they couldn't go into the temple because his glory was there, the, the weightiness of God. And so it's being communicated here. He's saying, look, because of who God is, we actually have a hope, which, again, Uh, It's not desire. We use the word hope all the time as desire. I hope I get this job. I hope I go to this school. I hope I whatever. Uh, I hope I get married someday. I hope I get out of this marriage. I mean, all the things that we, you know, the different hopes that we have, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is expectation. So it's really important. So when we read hope as Christians, we're not saying, oh, gosh, I hope I get into heaven someday. Like, ooh, maybe if, you know, old Peter's up there with the scales. No. As the Christian, we say, I expect to go to heaven. I expect it. Not because of me. <laughs> Not because I'm righteous. I expect that. So he says that we have an expectation that we can walk in, and it's the, it's the expectation of God getting glory. Now, we know from a lot of other uh, instances, other, other verses, that God will share his glory. Not his Shekinah glory as God, his essence, but that we will share some sort of weightiness or good opinion with him. Not to say we'll become famous and people will see us in heaven and be like, oh, wow, you're really great. Not that at all. But that we'll get to share in that amazing weightiness of God. When you read about you know, his description in Revelation, whether it's his incredible throne or uh, you know, the description of the Lord Jesus with the eyes of fire and the, the, the tongue uh, like a sword, you know, these, these different things that we read about. That we'll be with him and share in that glory in some way. 
Having that being said, there's a, there's a great verse, I think, that really illustrates this and the thought that we're coming into. If you wouldn't mind turning to 2 Corinthians. <coughs> Excuse me. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talking a lot in 2 Corinthians about, four, about uh, suffering, uh, in, in chapter 4 about suffering, about ministry suffering, suffering for Christ, dying to ourselves so that Christ's life may shine out of us. And he concludes it by saying this, verse 16, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And obviously there's a, there's a ton to talk about there, a ton to unpack there. We're not going to do that today. But just to illustrate this point that we're about to enter into and that Paul's been talking about, there is suffering in following Jesus. And it really comes down to what happens in that suffering, it comes down to what we're looking at. Because everything that is seen is temporal, he says. And that's, to me, it's a very freeing thought. The only thing that you've seen today or yesterday or the day before that or tomorrow that will last is the soul of the people you've seen. That's it. That is the only thing on this planet. God says eventually he'll wad it up like an old garment and chuck it into a fire. The only eternal thing here is us and our souls. And if we're focusing on all the things that are seen, if, we're, if our focus of our life is, is politics or it's money or it's you know, any of these things that, that are important, they have a place, but they, they don't last. And they will not last. And so he says that how we look at things and what we're looking at will actually determine what happens in our suffering. And he says when we're honest about it, when we're looking at the things that are unseen, the eternal things, that is working for us an eternal way of glory. Now, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound bad. It doesn't sound like something you're going to get up there and be like, oh, dang it, an eternal way of glory? I was hoping for like a Porsche or something. You know, it's, it's going to be amazing. Some sort of shared communion with Christ, this sharing in that amazed awe and awesomeness of who he is, being able to talk about the experiences of our lives and to confess, yeah, you were always faithful. You always took care of me. Because the amazing thing, if you wouldn't mind, flip back to Romans chapter 5, the amazing thing about suffering is that you and I are the only people that will determine what it does to us in our lives. Our parents won't determine that. Our siblings won't determine that. Our friends won't determine that. Our Facebook account won't determine that. Only you and I can determine what suffering does for us. Because he promises that he can make it work for good. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That's why he's saying he begins addressing suffering by saying, let us be at peace. You have the peace. It's yours. Embrace it. Let us be in grace. You have the grace. It's yours. Embrace it. Walk in it. And now he's going to talk about the suffering. He says, knowing that suffering, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces. And we'll stop there. 
The first thing he says about suffering is you can know something. It produces something in you. Now, this is where we come in. Because many of us have had, probably all of us, have had opportunities where, to suffer for whatever reason. Whether we suffer because somebody else caused suffering in our life, whether we suffer because just natural, unfortunate circumstances cause suffering in our lives, whatever it might be, whether it's nature or the economy or whatever it could be, we've probably all experienced suffering. And all of us, I'd be willing to bet if we went around the room and we polled everyone, probably had a time in our life where we were suffering and we blamed God. And even though it's human beings that, you know, snub and insult and destroy one another, even though it's human beings that, that cause, that do things that cause cancer, that do things that, you know, whatever, even though it's human beings that assault and are assaulted, even though it's human beings that pretty much cause every single evil on the planet, as soon as something bad happens to us, we go, you did this. You let this happen. This is your fault. Never mind the fact that we have like 10,000 years of history of man screwing things up. This one's your fault. You did this to me. You ever felt that way before? I think probably most of us have, at least in a moment. And when we feel that way, it's interesting because when we feel that way and we acknowledge it and walk in it, and this is the crux of discipleship and Christianity. What do you acknowledge and what do you walk in? That's what decides your entire day. It's what decides your moment. It decides what's going to happen to you. It decides what fruit's going to come out, come out of you. It's going to decide what your family's going to be like, what your kids are going to be like, what your church is going to be like, what your job is going to be like. Every single thing in your life depends on what do you acknowledge and what do you walk in. Our own suffering is our own fault. He said, Paul said, let's be in God's peace. So when the bank account's empty, what do we do? This is your fault, God. Never mind, I just you know, messed around my entire high school career. You should have given me a better job. You should have done this. You should have done that. It's your fault, the economy, and I'm poor now. Or do we say, okay, here's where I'm at with my finances. It's not a good place. Lord, can you help me? Or will you provide for me? Right? One is panic and wrath, and one is faith, peace and grace. And so in every relationship, in every contact, in every dilemma we have, Paul is saying suffering can reap something in you, but we have to stay and acknowledge and walk in God's peace, that he's not at war with us, he didn't try to get us, he's not against us, he's working for us, and his grace, that he favors us. That he says like of Israel, you're the apple of my eye. If anybody touches you, it's like they're poking me in the eye. The fact that we have this promise, this, this love letter, because that will ultimately determine how we receive suffering. It'll determine how we walk in our, in our relationships and all of that. So Paul says that if we're willing to walk in the peace and the grace that God has for us, when we come into to suffering, to difficulty, to oppression, it will produce, first he says, endurance or steadfastness. In the Greek, it's the ability to stay under weight. That's what it means. The ability to stay and remain in a difficult place. So how do I practically stay and remain in a difficult, a difficult place? Let's say that just ethereally, somewhere out there, someone wronged us, right? And we're genuinely wronged. They, they ripped us off. They broke our hearts. They advertised one thing, they did another. Whatever it might be, somebody's genuinely wronged us. Because I think for most of us, being wronged is one of the most difficult things in the world to get over, Right? 
Um, how, much, how much church transient, you know, transient movement is there? Because someone wronged someone, whether it was the leadership or someone else who went there or whatever it was. And instead of reconciled or trying to, you know, some things cannot be reconciled. I'm totally open for that. But instead of reconciling, you know, we leave or we do whatever we do. But someone has genuinely wronged us. So practically, how do I walk in a situation where someone has genuinely wronged me? Well, number one, I have to acknowledge that God is at peace with me. It seems disconnected, but it's really not. That ultimately my judge, that ultimately the person that I'm accountable to, in the end, has not wronged me and is not against me. So I can be at peace. So even if the Illuminati is trying to get me, I'm going to be okay because my judge is at peace with me. right? And I can say like Job, hey, though he slay me, I'll trust him. He can kill me. My life is... Is, is his, right? And then after that, if I'm going to walk in it, because all these emotions are going crazy in my mind and in my heart, and I'm like, no, but I've been wronged, and it feels so good to be mad about being wronged, and then how do I deal with that? I have his grace. God has unmerited favor for me. And in that very moment, I can say, you know what, this person that's wronged me or mocked me or hates me or whatever, has power over me in my job or some relationship or is manipulating me or whatever it might be, but you know what, I have God's grace in my life. He hasn't abandoned me. He favors me. He's for me. He's working. I have his favor, right? So right away, I have practical steps in my life about spiritual truths that Paul gives me about suffering. And so every moment when that comes up, because it does, isn't that how unforgiveness works? You can be like, oh, Lord, I forgive that person in Jesus' name. Man, I hate that person, right? You're like, oh, nope, nope. Lord, you, you love them. You want to bless them. And you have favor for me. I'm not condemned for my hatred, but it's destructive. And I'm, I'm repenting. I'm giving that back to you. Thank you that you're at peace with me and you want to help me and you're going to get me through this. Right? That's usually how struggles work, don't they? So what the funny thing is, is usually we can't point to a time or a place, but one day all of a sudden we've forgiven that person. We don't even know we've forgiven that person. It just comes up and you're like, I'm not mad anymore. Or we can't point to a time or a place, but all of a sudden, we're not checking the bank account every two seconds. Oh, did that check clear? You know? And we go, I, I either will or won't. I'm going to be trying to be faithful, but the Lord, Lord, you know. I'm not going to worry about it, though. And all of a sudden, we're steadfast. We don't know how we became steadfast. We can't point to a time where we go, I became steadfast. <laughs> right there. I was steadfast. No, we just... We're just steadfast. Suffering, while abiding, produces steadfastness. And then it's all, all of a sudden that steadfastness says that stead, that that, uh, that steadfastness it produces character. You know the word character is not actually there. It's the word proof. It produces proof. But for translation's sake, so we can understand what they're talking about, it's that that proof is worked out in my life. In other words, I have a, I have a certain character about me because the character is it's who you are. Right? That's how we, oh, I like that character or that character in this play or this book or whatever it is. It's who they are. And so he says that as we walk in this suffering, in this difficulty, as we're given and committed to walking in the peace that God has for me and the grace that God has for me, and I'm applying that to other people's lives as well because I realize who I am, then I become steadfast because I'm just continually giving my life back to Christ, realizing that death has to work in me and my will so that his life can come out of me. I become steadfast in that. I'm working through that. And then what that does, it produces a proof in me. It proves in me, and I go, wow, I can trust the Lord. And it becomes a character of my life. It's who I am. 
See, we become in practice, or I should say in practice, that's what we become. Whatever, Jesus put it this way. He said that whatever, uh, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He didn't say where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. He said what you treasure is where your heart will be. And that wasn't just some grandiose, that's for all walking with Jesus. If I treasure the peace, if I treasure the grace, if I treasure the relationship, if I treasure who he is, then that's where my heart will be. But where is our heart when we, when we despise those things? Where we go, you know what, God's peace is worth jack to me because I want to be angry and I'm justified. Where's our life then? What's the fruit of that? Anger? Typically anxiety if you're a, a believer because the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go that way. Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your children. It's going to hurt your family. It's going to hurt your church. It's going, to, it's, just, it's going to hurt everybody across the board. But we in our stubborn, we say, no, it doesn't matter to me because I'm mad and I deserve it, and that's what I'm going to walk in. And the fruit of that, it just, isn't it just, it goes for days, doesn't it? It's just radical. So, but he says, a character develops in you. And then as that's who you become, something else happens. It produces hope. How does it produce hope? Well, he gives to some extent, he says, and the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But see, when we have as a character that we're going to decide to allow God to work in our hearts and to go his way, it produces expectation in us. Because we begin to look back at our life and we go, I know I'll be fine. I know I will. Because God's always been faithful to me. He's always been good to me in my life. Every time I've suffered and I've turned it back over to him, he's done great things in my life. Every time I've turned it over to me, not so much. But every time I've turned it over to him, he's, he's done something great in my life. And I think, it, I don't know if it's always been this way or if it's kind of a new thing. I couldn't, I couldn't comment to that. But it seems like every, I, I want to be careful with absolutes. It seems like many, many places and many, many conversations uh, many, many posts or you know, text conversations. I've said it, and I hear quite a bit, I could never do that. I could never do that. I could never walk through that. I could never, like, you know, you read, the, you read Fox's book of Martyr, Martyrs and, you know, William Tyndale, the guy with Tyndale Press, literally breaking free, free from the guards, running to the stake and hugging it. They never even had to chain him to the stake. They just lit him on fire while he was hugging it for translating the Bible into Greek from Latin. Isn't that wild? And you go, I could never do that. I just never could do it. You know what? You're right. And the crazy thing about saying I could never do that what it really boils down to is what we're saying. I'm not trying to make people offender for a word because I understand the colloquialism. But when we do that, we're setting ourselves up. We're becoming prophets of our own destiny. Because if we really think to ourselves, I could never do that. We're wrong and we're believing a lie. Because we can do it. We can't. We probably don't have the strength for it. But the Spirit does. And the person who runs out to the stake and hugs it, that's not law. I mean, let's be honest. That's not a law. You don't face being burnt alive going, well, this is probably what I should do. Right? You know? No deserter of any, armor thought, of any army thought to himself, I probably should get shot for this. I'm just going to come on back and get shot for it. It's just not true. That's not how we operate. Love gets a person burnt to death. 
Love makes a person run out to the stake and say, I just love God so much. He's been so faithful. He's been so good to me. The person who has a character, not a character that they just had. No martyr just had character. They grew. Like Abraham. Dude did some growth. He starts off by ignoring God's promise practically. He trades Sarah. Can you imagine that? This big patriarch of faith meets another foreign king and he's like, hey, Sarah, I know you're like 90, but you're really hot. And this foreign king, he's going to want you for his harem and he'll kill me to get it. So I'm going to go ahead and trade you away and uh, that way I won't die. You're welcome. Right? It's God that has to get her out of that. And his son does it too. He learned it from his father. Isn't that wild? These great men of faith, <laughs> they were like us. They're broken people. Broken people that God did a work in. And he was only able to do the work because they said, okay, you could do a work. And it's going to hurt. But I'm going to keep coming back to you. And when I rage or when I fear, I'm going to keep coming back to you. I'm going to stand in the peace. I'm going to stand in the grace that's always there for me. It's, it's always being applied to me. It's never being removed from me, but I remove myself from it. So he says that this hope, it does something. It'll never put us to shame. In other words, shame is when we're embarrassed about something, right? Shame is typically something that we despise. If, meaning, not despise, we typically use that to mean I hate that, I despise that. We're saying I hate that, but the true meaning is I have no esteem for it. It's worth nothing to me. There's no worth in that. Typically, if we feel shame, it's because we think there's something in us or something that's out there that is worthless. And so we're ashamed of it. And it can be a physical defect. It can be a mental defect. It can be all sorts of things where we're ashamed of that thing, right? Or we can be ashamed of someone in our life who did something. I mean, that's really when you go to the Middle East and they have kind of an honor-shame dynamic. Uh, it's interesting. I was talking to a guy recently, and the people, people will get saved. They'll be like, yeah, okay, Jesus, yep, yep. And they'll be like, hey, do you want to come to the church? They're like, no way. No way I'm coming to church because it would shame my family, and I don't want to do that to them. So it's weird. Shame is something that we, we, we can often feel, feel we despise something. Paul says this, this hope that's implanted in our hearts, this expectation that we now have because we've always found God to be faithful, and that's the character that we have in our hearts, because we just allowed him to work on our hearts because we stayed, we made a decision to stay steadfast and to come back to him to dwell in his grace and his peace. He said, there will never be something that results from that that will cause you to be ashamed of, not before God, that it will only be that which is of value, in other places, our, our faith is likened by Peter, for example, to be gold that is tried by fire, that has all the dross taken out of it. So the Bible is just riddled, littered with imagery of, of needing change in our lives. It's riddled with imagery of victory and of um, advancement, but it's always at a cost. See, forgiveness is free. It's a free gift. Sanctification is a gift from God through Jesus Christ. But we have to say, okay. We have to say, I'll, I'll take it. 
So oftentimes you get the question, well, how could somebody get saved and live their whole life without ever any fruit? Well, I don't think that's actually possible. But the thing is this, because it's really easy for a person to get saved and say, yes, I need that forgiveness. It's a lot easier to do that than to say, yes, God, please take this cancer, this moral cancer from my heart that I love to foster. I love to hate. I love to judge. I love to gossip. I love to measure. I love to smash. It's much more difficult to say, yes, take that out of me, because we're so twisted in our minds that we feel satisfied when we do those things. And the idea that I could find satisfaction out of the things that I love and to become who I am is so foreign to us that I could find satisfaction outside of a relationship, outside of being angry, outside of the validation of my Facebook friends, jumping on board every time I say I hate something. The fact that I could find real identity outside of that is foreign to us. That's why a person can get saved and show very little fruit their whole life. Because they've never or they rarely taste and see that God is good. They experience the forgiveness. And all of us want the healing, but we don't want to deal with the sin. Because it hurts. It's hard. But what the Bible is telling us, if we just open up, if we yield our life, in fact, in chapter 6, man, I don't even know how many times the word yield comes up. But if we yield our hearts and our lives, if we die, 2 Corinthians 4 says, if we die, if we bear in our bodies the death of Jesus, say no to ourselves, then the life of Jesus will be manifested out of our life. And that's where the fruit and the joy and the peace comes in. Our lives in the natural, our natural habits, our natural sinful fallen nature can never deliver the eternal fruit we want. It can't. What we have always been looking for is in Christ. And it cannot and it will not be found anywhere else. No matter how much we drink, how much sex we have, how much we self-medicate with Netflix or weed or whatever it is, only Christ and Christ alone is going to deliver that intrinsic need we have for fulfillment, for appreciation, for love. It's only going to be in Christ. So every time we step out of what God is calling us to do, we're not harming him. We're not even offending him. We're separating ourselves from him. We're calling him a liar. We're saying, you, you actually don't know what you're doing, but I do. I'm really smart. Watch this, God, you know, whatever it might be. It's pretty radical that what God has called us to and the fact that we'll never be disappointed by it. He says there in verse 6 that while we were still weak, so he's going to make an illustration now of why we don't have to be uh, discouraged, how we know God loves us and what the Spirit is ministering to our hearts. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, literally ineffectual or um, essentially just unable to do anything. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So he came at the right time. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he's making the illustration. He says, look, it's hard to find a person who's willing to lay down their physical life for a good person, someone who would be esteemed as a, as a contributor to society, as worth saving, right? He says, it's hard enough to find that. Isn't that why we have the, the Congressional Medal of Honor? Isn't that, why, isn't that why it gets handed out? I think like 99.5% of Medals of Honor are handed out posthumously after death. 
Because they're typically guys that jumped on a grenade or guys that, I mean, there's some pretty incredible stories of valor, of these, these men and women standing up and doing things that cost them their own life to preserve that. We have a medal to commemorate it, and it's very rarely given out because it's not seen that much. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rare thing for someone to have that kind of, of love for another human being. And he says, if it's hard to find someone who's willing to lay down their life for someone who's worth preserving... But Christ laid down his life for people that were not worth preserving. That while we were still sinners, while we were weak, and it literally translates, while we were still sinning, while we were in the middle of our sin, doing it in the moment and enjoying it, Christ died for us. And he's going he's, to go on from there. Since, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he's, he makes a comment. He says, look, since we've been justified, remember, it's, it's, it's just as if I'd never sinned, said by many people. The idea that it's, when I'm justified before the Lord, it means that I, it's, he treats me as if I have no unrighteousness. He treats me as if I'm, I'm a just person, right? So we have that justification through his blood. But now he says, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. So not only... As a believer in Jesus, do I have that justification? Not only do I perpetually or in perpetuity stand in grace, stand in peace, but now I know as a believer I will and you will be saved from God's wrath. There is no place for God's wrath in the life of the believer. We know that from here. We know that from 1 Thessalonians. The wrath is not sort of for you. It's not, it's not for the believer. It's more good news. Then he's going to say, verse 10, for if while we were the his, excuse me, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's going to go on further. So not only does the believer never have to worry about wrath in the context of judgment from God or, or wrath at all, now he's going to say this. If he did this when we were enemies, and the Greek word for enemies is enemies, people at war with each other. People that hate each other. When we were warring and hating against God, he reconciled us. In other words, when we were in the lowest of low places, what Christ did at Calvary reconciled us. Reconciliation is amazing, isn't it? Have you ever had a, a relationship or some sort of institute? When you're, when you're uh, is there an unreconciled, disreconciled? I don't know how that works. When you're the opposite of reconciled in a life, right? What does that generate? If you walk into a room with someone you have no reconciliation with, it generates usually anxiousness, anger, um, despising them, disesteeming them, assigning worthlessness to them, or, or hurt, because maybe you're the reason why there's no, there's no fellowship there. When you're not reconciled with someone, it is absolutely miserable. And Paul says we were his enemy, and we were completely unreconciled from him, not reconciled with him. But that's when Christ died for us. When we were despising him, when we shouted from the, from the ground, hey, you're the Christ, save yourself. You saved others. When we spat at him, we mocked him. He says, that's when he was reconciling us at the cross, when he was crucified for our sin. And he says, so if he was willing to do that to save us, now, when we were his enemies, he saved us. So in, 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 that, in that contest, now, uh, verse, uh, see, verse 10, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
Now, this is a foreshadowing of chapter 6, what it is to walk in the life. See, Christ, when he died and he rose again from the dead, it says that he created a new man in Christ. There's different, there's different te- uh, terminology for it. The new man in Christ, uh, the, the new nature, um, being in Christ. These are all words or descriptions for the same event, that Christ created a new life that we get to live in. It's, he, it's his life. It's his power but we get to enjoy it by identifying with him and walking in it. That's what chapter 6 is going to be all about when we get there. But having said that, if we were reconciled now, how much more life are we going to have? How much more uh, excitement? How much more fulfillment? How much more joy? How much more peace? All the things that we think of, the imagery that pops into our head when we say life, whether it's like Thomas Kincaid and all the lights or whatever it might be. Life has this, this imagery, doesn't it? When someone says life, you know, if you watch beer commercials, they give us what life is, right? If it's corona, you're on a beach somewhere, right, with some very improbable, impossible body of yours. You know, whatever it is, that's what, that's what life would be. You know, if you're drinking Budweiser's, you're, like, riding on a big horse thing and, like, yeehaw. Or but you know, they all have their projection. If you drink this, then this is what life will be. It'll be so relaxing or it'll be dominant. It'll be this. It's a lie. But he, in our imagery, he says, look, I will have life, fullness, enjoyment, peace, right? And he goes on and he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He says, more than just our images of life, more than just walking with him and all that, we have received, he comes back to the same idea. We rejoice, we boast in the fact, when we come to worship the Lord, when we come to Christian fellowships, when we come to turkey lunches, we rejoice. We say, man, I'm here because I'm reconciled to God. My boast is that he reconciled to me. I have no boast here. I haven't done anything good. I haven't done anything right. My boast is the Lord. And when we walk in suffering that way, when we can be honest about who we are, and we can be honest about who God says he is, and we're willing to acknowledge that and to walk in that, he says that there's a life ahead of you that's incomprehensible. But it has to be experienced. It has to be something, somebody else can only talk about it. They can only tell stories about it. They can only, you know, draw pictures of it, write poems about it, songs about it. You can, and I can never know it, no know it, unless we walk in it. And everything else is just trying to appropriate other experiences or trying to pretend like it. And that never lasts in suffering. It never does. And so I encourage you, what is God calling you to today? What is this, what's on your heart today? What is he telling you to take up? What is he telling you to put down? What does he have for you today? What's destroying you today? And you know it. And God says, lay that aside and you'll never be ashamed. None of us will ever stand in heaven and be like, dang it, I wish I had held on to my sin more. I don't know what I was thinking. If I knew heaven was going to be this big of a letdown, I totally would have smoked more weed. You know what I mean? <laughs> that will never happen. We will never be ashamed. He has great things for you. I encourage you. He loves you. And, and, and just I the same encouragement for me, walk in that love. Walk in the grace. Walk in the peace. Don't trade it for anything. Uh, there's tons of offers out there, but none of, them, none of them are legitimate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your loving kindness and your promises. Lord, thank you for victory over sin. Lord, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Thank you for the calling on our lives. And Lord, I pray as we go out of this place that we'd be encouraged by your peace, by your love, by your grace. And I pray that we would make decisions and choose to stand in that. I pray, Lord, that you would get a hold of our lives, especially when we're holding on. Lord, I pray when we hold on to stuff, would you just be merciful? Break our hands. Lord, break our hearts. Lord, please help us on this side of eternity to acknowledge your glory and goodness and to entice us with the great things that you have for us. Lord, thank you for never giving up on us and always being merciful to us. And we appreciate that. Lord, we pray you give us opportunities this week for your glory to give good opinion about you. And uh, Lord, we pray that you bring just good old-fashioned heathens to get saved at our church, to know you. And, and Lord, that this would be a place of joy and of peace. Thanks for being good. In Jesus' name, amen.